You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. Uh, let's remember some years. Let's remember one of the best years in Seattle sports history. Wow. 2005. Oh, we start with the Seahawks making the Super Bowl. Oh, I remember that. Which, of course, technically happened in 2006, but it's part of the 2005 season. The Seahawks lost week one at Jacksonville and were 2-2 two and two before going on an 11-game winning streak before losing their season finale at Green Bay on New Year's Eve with Matt Hasselbeck playing only the first half since the Seahawks had already wrapped up the number one seed in the NFC. The previous week on Christmas Eve, they beat the 13-1 and Colts with Peyton Manning playing only the first quarter because Indianapolis had locked up the number one Jim seed. Jim Sorge coming up strong. Yeah. Uh, Sean Alexander was named MVP that season. Uh-huh. Obviously, Walter Jones actually deserved it because running backs, even though they probably mattered a little more than don't matter. I remember yeah. you had a boss who was at the Sonics, right? Who was a Steelers fan. I remember there was a story where you were like, oh, Sean, Alex or Sean Alexander won the MVP. And he responded, of what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that one. That's funny. Uh, uh, that that was, I mean, we, so we were at that game on Christmas Eve. It's funny because there's so many, like, I remember that Jacksonville game. Right? Were we camping when that happened? Yes, we were camping. Uh, so we listened to that one on the radio, and there were so many games. There was that game at Tampa Bay. Was that that was the season? Right? Like er, early in the year, it might have been week two, three, or four, and they struggled the entire game and managed to like pull out a victory at the very, very end. Uh, and so the most notable of the regular season games, though. No, they did not play Tampa Bay that season. I don't know. What you're thinking. Oh, is this a different year that I was thinking of? <laughs> Yeah, on that one, it, it must be. Well, the most notable game of that year, though, this is the right year, right? I'm thinking of the right year, was we were celebrating the Pelton Thanksgiving, the Sunday oh, after yeah. Thanksgiving. The Giants come to town, and a crazy game. We're like, I'm hosting the Pelton Thanksgiving at my house in Wedgwood, because that's where I was living, going to UW. And uh, we've been very excited to talk about the Wedgwood house, a classic <laughs> academic year. <laughs> should we talk, are so we talking about no five or should we wait until six to talk about it? We could do, I mean, a little of both. I feel like it really hit its stride. No, a classic. It was spring. Oh, six. That thanks really hit their stride. But, <clears throat> but like I pay no attention to the Pelton cast or the Pelton cast to the Pelton Thanksgiving that we were hosting because I, I was like, Katie, you got this. Who's not even <laughs> Katie? Katie was cooking the turkey, right? <laughs> I think so. And was so consumed by that football game against the Giants. It was like, that was a great game. Who was the kicker? Oh God, Lawrence Tynes. Was that Larry right? Tynes? I don't. I don't think no, it was. Oh no, you're wait. It, Wait, it I, wasn't, I have the box score up here. I should I should be able to figure this out. No, it was Jay Feely. Jay Feely. Jay Feely. And two of five. Two, he only missed three field goals? I don't Because I remember him missing like five field goals in that game. Uh, but he missed three consecutive field goals on their last three drives. My God. Oh. Wow, that is pretty wild. Uh, if let's see, one of them was a 54-yarder in OT. That's not very. That's not that disappointing. Uh, a 40-yarder 
at the end of regulation that would have obviously won the game since it went to overtime. A 54-yarder and then a 45-yarder again in overtime. There, there was that Texans game that was on Monday night or Sunday night. You went to this game, right? Week six versus the Texans. That was Sunday. It night, was yes. Sunday night football. <clears throat> where it wasn't a sweet for that. Jan one. had had won a contest where she won tickets to that game, and then the option of a Seahawks jersey, Marcus Tubbs, right? And I think it was their first round draft pick that year, maybe the previous year, and or Ray Allen, a Ray Allen jersey, and we definitely we went with the Tubbs jersey. That's how hyped people were on Seahawks football in 2005. It definitely was easier for him to get uh, a Ray Allen jersey than a Marcus Trump Still, jersey. Still, it would be like point. right now choosing an LJ Collier jersey over. Oh no! I, I don't know. I, there's we have very I mean, we have a lot less sports in Seattle now. Uh, it's true. <laughs> it would be like choosing an LJ Collier jersey over a Ray Allen jersey now. <laughs> so okay, they, so, they go into the playoffs as the number one seed. We got to talk about this Colts game a little, a second more though. Okay. There was like, for some reason, like they should have been taking everybody out or they should have been trying to run the clock. And instead, Sean Alexander scored a touchdown at the end of this game. And I was furious oh, about it. Yeah, you I was complaining really about it the entire walk back. Cause we like left immediately after that. And you're like, look, you need to calm down. Other people are around and are going to like fight with you. <laughs> we about won this. the game. Michael Bower had, had a huge pick at the end of the game. Right. Or is that, Big Bower? It was Michael Bower. Uh, right? It wasn't Babs. It wasn't Big Play Babs. Man, our memory for this is kind of going away 15 years later. <laughs> uh, no, I think you're thinking of the Miami game that we went to where Bower had the interception. So. Oh, that was the Miami game early in the year. Yeah, so I was going to Highland Community College again, home of Brian Scalabrini. And two times that year, or no, I think we bought the Colts tickets. But the Dolphins game we went to, because at Highland Community College, they had like a, a table set up where they were selling Seahawks tickets for like $10. Do you remember this? Well, I don't remember going to Highland Community College. No, just... <laughs> yeah, you were busy getting the president's scholarship to UW. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Miami game was in 2004. Okay, so that, that was when I got the tickets. But yeah, there, there was a table set up at Highland Because you weren't in Highland Community College in 2005. Oh you God. were UW. Wow, I'm remembering this terribly. I don't remember some years at all. Well, anyway, oh, no. that 2004 game. Wait, so Boy, that, had a 63-yard touchdown Bowler return. Had a huge, huge game. That was, that was 2004. Anyway, the, yes. the Seahawks fan base, this, this is to illustrate how different the fan base was in the early 2000s versus now. They had a table set up at Highland Community College where they were selling tickets. They just had like a, think a bunch of tickets in a fucking envelope for $10 per ticket. And, you know, they weren't great seats or whatever, but, like, it was just, we just walked up, and, and me and my friend were just like, do you want to go to the Seahawks game? They're like, I don't know, sure. <laughs> I guess so. And we just walked to the table and bought them. Like, we would buy tickets a month out, right? Like, it was not a difficult activity. And the fan base before 2005 was not the same. This was the year. People talk about the bandwagon jumpers during the Super Bowl, you know, this current Pete Carroll run? No, this was the year where the bandwagon formed. There, the Seahawks became the most important sports team in the city of Seattle in 2005, and that never changed. 
Yeah, no, I guess it didn't really, because when they went through a down period of time, all of Seattle sports went through a down period of time, and boy, it's going to be some dark years to remember oh, in a few years here. It, 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 uh, wasn't, to... it wasn't, here's, here's what I'll say about this. So the bandwagon first formed in 2005. This was the year that, like, it, it, the Seahawks became ubiquitous, right? Like, I think. I mean, I just, my, my just memory of this is, like, this is also when I got on Facebook, was, uh, Early fall, late summer uh-huh. of 2005, before that camping trip. The Facebook. And, uh, yes, uh, I was, I fortunately still had my UW email address, uh, so I could join. And I, I all I remember is like, <laughs> no, no, they, I didn't need to go to the OA. There were not that many K Peltons at, at u.washington at edu back in the day. Now they just changed to like my UW or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's much shorter it's now. Way, Way to too type. convenient for these students. <laughs> Back in my day, you had to type the whole U. thing. U. Washington. Edu. Damn it! And we liked it. <laughs> uh, and all of a sudden, like all of my friends from high school are posting about like these Seahawks games they're going to, and I'm like, look, I I remember back in high school, the Seahawks won the AFC West my senior year of high school, and it was like my best friend and I were the only two people who cared. Yeah, that was only, it. The only bandwagons you and John know age. <laughs> it's true though like th- that's the reality is this is when people started rallying around the team like that you could you could buy season tickets i think chris smith the season tickets that i have currently he bought more or less like mid-season i think in 2005 he like went to a couple games and then he bought the rest of the season then and then i think he bought full season tickets in 2006 but, like, this was a team that was going to the Super Bowl, and halfway through the year, you could just be like, ah, fuck it, I think I want to go to all these games. Like, the idea yeah. of doing that now is absurd. Yes. Was undefeated at home and winning so many blowouts. So the games I went to that year, uh, the Texans game you mentioned, they won 42-10. to 10. That was, I believe, the inaugural Texans team. Uh, I went to the San Francisco game in Week 14. They won that 41-3. to 3. Alex Smith in that game, who was a rookie, the number one overall pick, went 9 of 22 for 77 yards, which is That's actually not the worst quarterback Because Derek Carr was the pick. Uh, Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I said that right. David Carr? David Must... Carr? Which guy, whatever Carr it is. One of the cars. <laughs> I, when they have the same initial, it's very difficult to keep them straight. And then that Indianapolis game where they beat the 13-1 Colts 28-13, to granted, with backups. Oh, so playing. they comfortably and... beat the Colts in that game. Huh. Yeah, the Colts were leading in the first quarter when Peyton Manning played. I remember that then. being, like, a really excellent Christmas Eve because, like, we went to that game, came back, we were feeling so good about the Seahawks, right? Yeah. I mean, when the Seahawks play on Christmas Eve, that's going to defend to find how the day is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so know, the Seahawks you know get what? to the... They played on Christmas Eve in the Tavares Jackson season, and... That's true. That was not that bad. No, they lost to the 49ers, and it was, like, a... It was a gentleman's loss. That's a great way to describe it. That was a good 49ers team. It was a very respectable effort. And you knew that once they got a real quarterback, they were going to be amazing. Uh, And that quarterback's name is Matt Flynn. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so they they get to the playoffs as the number one seed. Beat the Washington professional football team 20-10 in the division round. I believe that's led by Mark Brunel, is that right? Or is Todd Collins starting that game? I think the Todd Collins game was the other one. Yeah, that was Mark Brunel. All right. Was that when Joe Gibbs was back as the coach of Washington? I believe so, yes. I believe, that, I believe yeah. that Joe Gibbs was back. Yes, it was. So, And then the uh, NFC Championship game, a day we've previously talked about. Re- repeatedly. It was, yeah, <laughs> also the day where these, 
an exciting Sonics win over the Suns, 151-149, and then or 152-149, and also Kobe, the late Kobe Bryant's 81-point game happened that same day. It's 2006. You can't talk about it. I know. We'll we'll get to it. Uh, the Seahawks dominate Carolina in the NFC Championship game, 34 to 14, to reach their first ever Super Bowl. So, oh, we get to Ford Field and Super Bowl XL. <laughs> I, the other thing I remember from this period, this was the stretch where it rained for like 35 days it, it straight. It rained for, I swear to God, 40 straight days. We're talking biblical rain in the city of 40 Seattle. 40 days and 40 nights. De- depression levels. So that January, we came back from Christmas break to UW, me and Katie, and I determined, oh my God. I, Technically, it was 27 consecutive days. That's all? Yeah. I determined that I was not going to spend literally any money. <laughs> and I wasn't going to, and I think we collectively agreed that we were not going to turn the heat on in the house. And I definitely <laughs> wasn't going to turn the heat on in my room. Cause these are the insane things that you determine when you're whatever, 18 years old. No, 20 years old. You were much older than 18. When you're 20, when you're 20 years old. And I left my heat on accidentally over the entire spring for the, the entire, like, winter break in my room. So it was blazing hot. It was like 70, some 75 degrees or whatever for like two full weeks. And we came back and there's this giant heat bill. So I was like, fuck it. I'm never turning on the heat again. I'm never buying food again. So Katie would have to be like, I, I'm going to McDonald's. I will get you a 39 cent cheeseburger. <laughs> and I'm like, Katie, I can't out of principle. I cannot eat a 39 cent cheeseburger. <laughs> I'm just like, like a fucking, just, it, it was a crazy time. And meanwhile, it is raining for what feels like 40 straight days. I swear it got to 40, but so the, deep in the darkest depths of depression, even despite the Seahawks run, because this is Seattle in January it's wet, it's cold, it's gross, I'm freezing, I can't even get a McDonald's cheeseburger. And on the day of the Super Bowl, Super Bowl XL, it is sunny for the first time, I think, that entire year. No, it was the NFC Championship game, it was sunny. We played basketball. Did we on the NFC Championship day. game? I don't know. Yeah. We played basketball the during day of the, the Super F- Bowl. During the NFC Championship I game. think it rained later. But I remember driving, I was driving down to SeaTac from Wedgwood. I, I drove... I drove from SeaTac to Wedgwood and back to Wedgwood. We were barbecuing. We were drinking beers. We were definitely barbecuing. We played basketball. Like, it was it. It was a sign, right? It was a sign from God that things were going going to go well for us in the Super Bowl. I was like, I've seen the sun. I remember driving through that area on I-5 heading south where it's like by like the, you can see the paramount to your right and there's all the freeways, all the like tunnels going above you. And then you pop out on the other side and the stadiums are right there to your right. And you're like, everything's okay. We've made it through this. <laughs> it's early February in Seattle. It's never going to be bad again. <laughs> and then the Super Bowl was canceled. So the Seahawks lose the Super Bowl to the Steelers 21 to 10. That's the Steelers with an A, of course. Because <laughs> we're not over it. 
I got over it when the Seahawks actually won the Super Bowl. But, but I it's still, when you watch these calls now, like, you can't not be frustrated. Yeah. Like, there, I mean, there's, there's a reality to it. Like, sure, we're over it in the, like, larger sense of the Seahawks. We've moved on, right? Like, the Seahawks have now won a Super Bowl and then had another Super Bowl canceled, weirdly. But... <laughs> At the end, very end of the game, it just feels like this. This team—they didn't get a fair shake in the game, right? Yeah. I mean, the Seahawks gained 396 yards in this game and scored 10 points. That is unheard of. So it was 14 to 10 when a pass to Jeremy Stevens that would have gone down to the one yard line was called back for a Sean Locklear hold. The Seahawks ended up in 3rd and 18 from the Pittsburgh 27, which is where Matt Hasselbeck was intercepted and then called for an illegal block on the Steelers' run back, giving Pittsburgh the ball at their own 44. Shortly thereafter, Antoine Randall L. completed a trick pass to Heinz Ward for a 43-yard touchdown, and that produced the final margin. Still haunts me. The... the, the... The penalty on Hasselbeck to me is the worst of all of them, though. Right? Like, I mean, that one, but that one wasn't on the referees. That's on the rule book. Like they they enforced the rule correctly. It's just a bizarre rule. There was an OPI on Daryl Jackson that nullified a touchdown. Yeah. I mean, there's like there's a Wikipedia page about this. There's a Ben Roethlisberger didn't score, right? Like he was shorted. It was just his helmet, right? Similar to the Vinny, Vinny Testaverde thing. What is the Wikipedia Wikipedia page? I'm not seeing that one. There was there's the the OPI and Daryl Jackson. There's the Sean Lockler hold, and then the illegal block by Matt Hass after that. Uh, there's an incomplete pass call early in the game from Hasselbeck to Jeremy Stevens. Stevens appeared to have possession and then fumble only for the officials to roll. He never had complete, which that one's gone from my mind. <clears throat> Apparently the Steelers were upset about some sort of play. Let me just ask you here, though. Were the refs cheating against the Seahawks in this game? Like, if if there were any game, and I know you're not, I know you're not going to say yes to this, but of course not. If there was any game that the NFL would have wanted a certain team to have won, it was the Steelers in this game in Detroit, Jerome Bettis' homecoming game, or whatever. That doesn't. How does that help the NFL? Like. They're not going to get story. higher ratings because the Steelers win the game. So then what? The NFL doesn't care. You think the NFL is like, we need to generate a story from the Super Bowl? <laughs> Literally the most covered sporting event that occurs annually in the world? <laughs> I think they're good. I mean, I'm a big believer in Hamlin's razor. Never attribute to malice <laughs> that which is adequately explained by incompetence. Especially when you look at who was refereeing this game, because it was like Jeff Triplett, wasn't it? Uh, it was Bill Levy. Oh, okay. Ah. Okay, well, I have you here. David Stern, though. <laughs> Come would, on. Would, would have rigged this? <laughs> We can associate some things to malice, right? <sighs> yes. Anyway, I mean, there was there was a let me tell you there was a lot of incompetence involved in that one too. Uh, long story short, uh, it just it really 
I'm I I'm actually still not over it. <laughs> I'm over it. I gotta say. So this, the crazy thing is, you know, that's obviously the number one sports story of 2005. There are, I think, two stories that in many, many years would be the number one sports story of the year in Seattle. Really? Sports. So next up, UW men's basketball earned the number one overall, a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Not the number, not the number one overall, dear God, no. They were like the 14th the the season. Team. We, well, yeah. we talked last week about their run to the NCAA tournament. Uh, strong finish and packed with 10 play. They started the season ranked number 22, some pretty high expectations because they brought basically everyone back. As we mentioned, Curtis Allen was the only senior on that 2003-04 team. Uh, won the Great Alaska Shootout back when that was still a thing. They beat Utah with Andrew Bogut, Oklahoma, and number 19, Alabama. That that uh, was when they Brandon got the Roy to the new surgery. And, and I remember Thanksgiving weekend <clears throat> going back. I remember sitting in my room at Chan's house on the floor watching all three of those games night after night after night, and the Huskies just winning. And you're like, we didn't really yeah, think that much this? of it, but in hindsight, Looking back on it, that is how they won. That and then the road win against NC State. Julius Hodges, NC State. That was a that was a home win. Oh, that was home the home one. So the previous year was at NC State. Correct, which they lost. Uh, but beating Julius Hodges, NC State was the, that was how they did it. Like this was not a team that in the end was one of the four best teams in the country, but they had these very close sort of marquee victories all at once. I think there must have been some sort of interest in the pollsters of having a West Coast team as a number one seed. And they so I, it feels like one of those situations where, you know, the second place voting, right? <laughs> where you, you talk about, like, the Huskies were nobody's first choice, but they were everybody's second choice, and that meant that they got to the number one seed. Yeah, Julius Hodge was very good that year. He once once played for the Sonics during summer. I, Julius, I, I expected him to be a very good NBA player. Me too. I think that was Kevin Durant's rookie season that Julius Hodge was on the summer league team. Uh, beat it number 12, NC State, 68-64. Uh, their only non-conference loss was at Gonzaga, and then they went 14-4 in Pac-10 play, second to Arizona. Got two narrow wins over Arizona State and Stanford to reach the Pac-10 tournament final where they beat the Wildcats 81-72. I, I think that was a bigger factor in them getting the number one seed, the recency of them winning the Pac-10 tournament. <laughs> Still, finishing second in the regular season in the Pac-10 meant they got the number one seed. And number one seed. It, was a, it was a slightly different Pac-10 <laughs> back then. Times have changed. Now, if, you, if you're second in the, Pac, in the Pac-12, you'll be there are more teams and less tournament spots now. Uh, if you're... Entering, entering the Pac-10 tournament, they were ranked 14th in the country. I mean, the they did still never finish that high in any polls. I think they finished the season ranked number eight in the polls. Uh, yeah. uh, <clears throat> but that makes sense because they lost in the Sweet 68. So I want to look up the exact date. Wait, I had this up. That they that they got the number one seed? February 26, 2005. UW versus Arizona. I was looking at this and I was like, why wasn't I at this game? But this was before I was at UW. No, so th- this was this was the no, spring. Are, wait, are you you're thinking of that game? It wasn't the Pac-12 Pac-10 tournament game? No, I think we were together watching the Pac-10 tournament game. 
Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. We played basketball beforehand with our cousin Chris. So, February 26, 2005, I'm at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. And there's, like, I'm up there with my girlfriend at the time, and there's, like, a common area downstairs in her dorm or whatever where there's a TV. And I'm down there just, like, freaking out the entire the entire game over this UW Arizona game. No one else cares. Like <laughs> there's not another soul on that campus who cared about this basketball game. And then like I think there was like a jump ball or something at the end of the game. There was some exciting moment that happened that went UW's way and I pumped my fist in the air so excitedly I threw my my arm out of its socket. <laughs> Now, was this the first time you did that? Uh, I think I've done it before, but this was the worst time. Still, to, to this day, the worst time that I've done it. Even worse than when you did it playing Sonic Softball. Or was that Storm Softball? Sonic uh, Softball? Yeah, it was not that bad. I mean, that was bad enough that I had to quit playing softball. But so this, my my arm went out of its socket. I have bad shoulders. And there I did. I don't know. Haven't, haven't, I'm going to knock out when I say that. I haven't really hurt them in a long time. But, like, it's been over a decade since I've hurt my shoulders. But, like... It came out of its socket and stayed out of the socket. I put my fist in the air. I'm in this common space where there are other people around. I'm screaming and writhing on the floor. (laughs) And nobody has any idea what's going on, right? Because, like, she didn't know. I wasn't, like, my arms out of the socket. It just hurt, and I'm screaming. I wasn't, like, there's no time to explain what's happening. And then... I'm laying there being like, I'm going to have to go to the fucking hospital in Bellingham or whatever. I'm like, this, none of this is what I want. And then eventually it slides back in the socket, right? I'm in horrible pain for quite a long time. That night, I'm laying in her bed or asleep in her bed. And I've had night terrors two times in my entire life or something like that or whatever. Vivid dreams that have made me do insane things. And I dreamt that one of, one of which was when we were living together, and then you freaked out the cat. No, there was like right? a feral cat or a cat in heat outside that woke me up, and uh, I thought it was attacking you me. Definitely freaked out. You definitely freaked out the cat. Oh, and I definitely terrified the cat. I remember... <laughs> okay, all right, both stories. Here we go. <laughs> so that time, <laughs> I, I, my bedroom and Jan's house is upstairs. Yours is downstairs right below me. There was I had my window open because it was summer and it was hot, and I, like, for whatever reason freaked out because there was a cat that woke me up or whatever and i ran out screaming at the top of my lungs like (laughs) broke my toe on the door uh our cat kitten started going insane and i remember like calming down like coming to and walking into your room and you're standing there with the covers half over or sitting there with the covers (laughs) half over your face like just i I was scared of the cat it's like And then I remember watching the movie. What's the movie about oh, war, war games. games? Yeah, I remember yes. you watched the only that. Way to, the only way to win is not and to play. I, I, I got back into bed because I didn't know my toe was broken at the time. And then I got back into bed and I was like, wow, that hurts really bad. And then I couldn't walk for like a week after that. Good times. So second time, I thought that my girlfriend was a killer or whatever trying to attack me in the bed. My arm had already hurt. I don't know if those two things are correlated, but there's something going on. So I freak out. She's in the top of a bunk bed. I jump out of the bunk bed, run down the dorm hall, again screaming as loud as I can. <laughs> I, like, come to at the end of the hall and then have to walk back, and I, like, see her poking out so I know which room it is, fortunately. And I'm, like, I, like, 
run back into the room. And then so we're laying there, and I'm like, oh, my God, what the fuck? And then for the next, like, five minutes, you could hear a bunch of doors opening and closing. <laughs> <Down the hall. laughs> oh, my God. <clears throat> that that was also the first ever time that I watched Clone High that day. Clone, technically a 2004 show, right? Clone High? Yes. Or or earlier, but <clears throat> freaking legendary. Because, you know, colleges used to have, I don't know if this is still, this is definitely not some case. Colleges used to have these, like, shared servers where people would share music. And so, like, people who went to real colleges, not unfortunately Highland Community College, would have these, like, massive databases of music available and TV or whatever you look through. I stole so much music from there in 2005. I never did. Uh, so the Huskies, like we mentioned, we were expecting them probably to be a number two seed, I think, after they won or, the Pac-10 tournament. Or three. Tournament. I mean, it seemed reasonable that they could have been a two or a three. We were feeling good. And then they flash up that last number one, and they're the Huskies. And... We were both, this is another situation where we were both watching at the same house, but not on the same TV. <laughs> I think I, I was working on some Sonic stuff, because they played that day, too. And I was watching upstairs, see the Huskies jump, come up, and then just start screaming and run downstairs where you are. <laughs> and then we celebrate being a number one seed for the first time in UW history. And last time, sorry, the first and last time and, in UW history. And then it becomes a moment of terror because it's like, oh no, we're going to be the first number one to ever lose to oh, a 16. Oh yeah, it was going down. But... That, it was it was a tight game, but they did beat Montana with Larry Kostobiak as head coach, eighty eight seventy seven, and then crushed number twenty two Pacific ninety seven seventy nine in the second round, reaching the Sweet Sixteen where they faced a Rick Pitino Louisville team that was way better in this, every single this way. This to me is this is even almost as damning as the refereeing in Super Bowl XL that Louisville. I I don't know how the pollsters like got together and decided that Louisville was a number four seed when at the time they were 33 and four or something like this was just because they were judging conference USA so harshly. This was, this was a team that was definitely better than UW. I think if, if I recall correctly, which I obviously don't cause it was 15 years ago in Ken Palm, Ken Palm.com, which I think we maybe recently discovered Louisville was in the top four and the Huskies were whatever, like 12 or something. And looking at it being like, they're obviously losing this game to Louisville. I mean, the thing is, like, Louisville was better than most of the two or three seeds, but if the Huskies were where they were supposed to be, they probably would have played a team about as good as Louisville. So I don't know if we actually can complain about it that much this, in hindsight. This, this team was really – this was a Final Four caliber team. Well, they made the Final That's Four. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, Before they lost to Illinois, who at that point had only one loss. If you lose the one seed, it doesn't matter. But if you lose in the Sweet 16, it is a bad showing. A Francisco Garcia. God, Francisco led. Garcia. I remember thinking he was going to be good in NBA too. I mean, he had a good run for a while there. So th- th- uh, there was, and that game was not particularly close. And I remember having hope throughout it, but it was just like they're just better than we are. There was a really hard screen that they didn't call foul on, right? Yes, yes, that is that dude, was dude thing who that wore goggles. Juan Palacios. And he wore goggles, right? Yes. I don't remember who he hit, but it was bullshit. Bobby Jones. Uh, maybe it's not Juan Palacios. He doesn't appear. Maybe it was the other guy, Ellis Miles. Maybe. 
I don't know. This is not going to be on YouTube. <laughs> Unless there's a still upset 15 years later UW YouTube. Otis George? I'm, I'm going through the George? here. What was the name? Anyone... Otis I George? I think it was no, Otis George. Those are pretty weird goggles. But... I mean, what, are, what are those guys? Said it really hard. And they didn't call foul. It was nothing. It's fucking bullshit. I, I don't know that that was going to change the outcome of the game. <sighs> I mean, they were just a better team, and nobody for the Huskies played particularly well. And they were obviously Otis, was here, here, here we go. The field from our game. good friends at Seattle Times. Wait, sorry. From the Seattle Times. No, uh, <clears throat> uh, they're doing great coverage of the novel coronavirus outbreak. They, they are our good friends now. It's like I, I can see the preview of the link, but when I click on it, it just takes me to seattletimes.com. So, here we go. Because the story no longer exists. Sports UW ending just didn't fit. Seattle Times newspaper, originally published Friday, March 25th, 2005, at 12 a.m. Otis George set a screen on Bobby Jones at midcourt that it would have made Baltimore dot, dot, dot. (laughs) 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 It would have made Baltimore something. (laughs) And And then ellipses. And after four delicious months of some of the best college basketball Seattle has ever seen, more ellipses. <laughs> so. It was still a great season. Like, I mean, we hadn't seen a Sweet 16 team. I guess it was only seven years, but, you know, a, a Sweet 16 caliber team in a long time. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was. this is the greatest heights that Lorenzo Roma ever achieved. I still think the team the next year was almost even better. I still feel like the, I mean, this would be an interesting uh, thing to go through at some point, which was Lorenzo Romar's best team. I feel like it was the 2011 team, even though that team did not, or the 2010 team, I guess. The one where they played, uh, where they lost to Purdue? No, the 2011 team, even though they lost in the second round, I think it was the best of these teams. That was the team that they lost in the second round. Had Isaiah Thomas... Justin Holiday, C.J. Wilcox. Oh, or they lost to North Carolina. Ter- freshman Terrence Ross won the Pac-10 tournament, but the cold blooded shot. I don't know about that. But they just lost so many close games earlier in the year that they had they were like a seven seed or whatever. On YouTube, when you when you search Otis George screen, number one, transformational prayer by the Global Prayer Resource Network. Number two, Garfield, two out of five movie clip. Odie saves Garfield. <laughs> number three, Al Green, how can you mend a broken heart? WMV. I don't. Sadly, I think this one is lost to time. Wow. Well, let's get to our third big Seattle sports story of 2005, and that's the Sonics oh. winning the Northwest Division in their first and only playoff series since 1998. We talked last week about the hot start that the Sonics got off to in 2004-05. A bit of a spring swoon dealt with some injuries, which briefly made Damian Wilkins a key starter as hey, a drafted rookie on this we team. We like Damian Wilkins. We did, but uh, still finished 52-30, and 30, winning the Northwest Division with the fourth-best record in the Western Conference and earning the number three seed. They faced the Sacramento Kings in the first round, uh, a Kings oh. team that had traded Chris Webber earlier in the year. To who? For uh, what? Philadelphia. Wow, I do not remember Chris Webber ever playing for Philadelphia. I guess now yeah. that you say that, I can kind of picture it. 
a huge game four from Ray Allen, who went for 45 points on 17 of 28 shooting in that series as the Sonics took a 3-1 lead, closed it out at home in game five. Jerome James playing against his former team averaged 17.2 points, 9.4 rebounds, and 2.2 blocks in the series. And got himself paid in that series. He sure did, and walked around with a trash bag afterwards because he said that that's what the Kings gave him to clean out his locker room after they waved him. But that was the deal that got him the big deal from the Knicks that summer as a free agent. Uh, Sonics advanced to play San Antonio, the eventual NBA champions. Ray and Vlade Rodmanovic both suffered sprained ankles in Game 1. Rodmanovic did not return in that series, followed in Game 3 by Rashard Lewis' toe sprain that sidelined him the last three games of that series. Uh, Tim Duncan missed a possible game winner with .9 seconds left in Game 3 as the home team took the first five games of the series, leaving it back at Key Arena for a must-win Game 6 for the Sonics, where Duncan made the go-ahead shot off of Manu Ginobili feed in the closing seconds. And Ray Allen was unable to connect on a three-pointer from the corner that would have won God. the game. You know what? You want to know what... Uh, I. I remember there was a foul, I think Potopenko fouled, which this is the dis- discrepancy between these two teams. Uh, yeah, Vitaly Potopenko was defending Tim Duncan on all of those plays. There, there was a, good God. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that at the time I could not appreciate Tim Duncan. Maybe now I would appreciate Tim Duncan a little bit more. Um, but I definitely at the time could appreciate that Vitaly Potopenko could not defend Tim Duncan. Uh, in seeing that happen and him score is just like <sighs> after the entire season that we went through and how fun that season was having it end with Vitaly Potapenko trying to defend Tim Duncan and doing so unsuccessfully. I mean, it, it wasn't his fault. It was actually because Manu had a blow by. I mean, it really wasn't anything. Potapenko had to come over. But, the, but there's the, only five tenths of a second left on the clock after that. That three that yeah. Ray took, it yeah. was right in front of us. And I swear to God, it was like it was going in. Oh, it was online. Yeah, we all, we all thought it was going in. Uh, I mean, they were losing the next game anyway. It doesn't matter, you know? Right. So, that's... But, you know, you, you get into... So you're saying there's a chance territory, basically. But, like, that one... That three that Ray took... It still haunts me. Like, watching that shot go up and being like... You know, one of those moments where you just know when if it goes in, you're just going to freak out, right? <laughs> like, you're going to go insane. You're around all, like, these, whatever, 13,000 people or something, that they're all going to just go nuts. And you just see, you can you can picture it happening. <sighs> and that three doesn't go in, and really that is the last exciting moment in Sonic's history. No, they won the lottery. <laughs> Or got number two in the lottery. Clay Ben won the fucking lottery. I don't even care. I did not care by that point. <clears throat> I I definitely care. I mean, it, it was fun uh, or whatever, but like, you know, like we we knew the writing was on the wall at that point, and winning the lottery was. It, how about this? It was the the last exciting on court moment in Sonic's history. I mean, I could probably come up with some, but yes, I mean that was my one of my favorite all time teams to cover, like. One of my memories from that season is just spending every pregame in the locker room. Ray Allen sat at his locker, the entire media availability, every game. 
Richard Lewis was next to him because Richard copied like everything Ray Allen did. Uh, Antonio Daniels was in there <laughs> a lot of the time. Including for an East competitor. No. <laughs> well, he he did that ahead of Ray. Actually, he did not copy Ray. Ray Allen. <laughs> he had no choice. Nick Collison, and there was always just these great, lively conversations with everyone. It was such a like fun group, such an unexpected season, and I will always remember. Yeah. I mean, it was it was the most fun NBA season that we ever paid attention to. <laughs> In my time covering the team, yeah. You know, football, as we mentioned last week, hired Tyrone Willingham as a replacement with Keith Gilbertson, and I was pretty excited about this. Like, oh, we love Willingham. Had done a good job at Stanford. You know, we were, we attributed the lack of success at Notre Dame to Notre Dame, which actually was yeah, correct. Yeah. Uh, I got to admit, I had forgotten how bad his first season was. The Huskies went two and nine that win with year with wins over Idaho and at Arizona, but did show signs of promise late. A competitive loss at Oregon State, the blowout win at the Wildcats by 24 points, and then a narrow 26-22 loss to Wazoo in the Apple Cup. Isaiah Stanbeck took over as quarterback and wasn't bad. Completed just 54% of his passes, but for 8.1 yards per attempt. Husky opponents completed 67% of their passes. Nobody else in the Pac-10 allowed more than 61% completion. Wasn't that Oregon State game that horrible game that we had at home? No. Where it poured rain? Was that 2006? Well, 2006... No. Yeah, no, that was at home. Was the wrong, that... dude. <clears throat> that Oregon State game was at home. No, because 2006 was the year they were that they played Oregon State at home. That's when November 5th, 3:30 p.m. Oregon State Husky Stadium lost 10 to 18. But that's not the game. That was the horrible game. It was it was at home in 2005. What fucking year are you talking about? No, I guess it was. Yeah, it was. I was gonna say I remember where I was living when this happened. That was the worst yeah, I, day I definitely of remember my giving you a entire ride life. To I think I would remember it, except for the next year when we inexplicably decided to drive to Eugene, Oregon to go see UW against Oregon. And let me just tell you, that was Ooh, not man. a fun drive back. It was uh, so this this year... I wasn't there, but I know. Uh, I was very excited because I'd started at UW this fall, and... I'd gotten season the season tickets for like a hundred dollars or something, and I think I think this was the time where you would buy football tickets to get access to basketball tickets was the way that it went because all of a sudden people wanted basketball tickets more because the Husky football team was going two and nine. But like before I'd even taken a class at UW, I'd seen first round draft pick Brady Quinn start against them. Hitting up first <laughs> starting pitcher Jeff Samarza, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And then also had seen. Well, so okay, USC was later on, but that game against USC was like watching that. I mean, uh, that was the year that USC played Texas. In that, it, you had seen a young man before you started class. You had seen a young man named Marshawn Lynch. Uh, yeah, that's that's play true. Husky well, I have no recollection of that Cal game. I mean, he was a backup at that point. I think. Who's wait? Who's Cal's starter? That was Kyle Bowler's Cal team. No, this is a, the quarterback is someone named Joe Ayub. Who I have never wow. heard of. But oh no, I guess Lynch was the starter, but he split time with Justin. <laughs> that Persat. was seen the most thrilling running back ten of in the Pac-10 history. 
uh, and then two future Seahawks later legends. that year, like honestly, like being able to be in Husky Stadium and watch future Hall of Famer Matt Leiner. Uh, but like that that <laughs> USC team, it was exciting to oh, get that's... beat by USC in that time. I mean, that's that's the greatest college football team that I mean we talked they, about the Miami I don't team, know, but man. That USC team lost, and that Miami it. team didn't lose. Oh, but that just that whole my like the Bush White, Lindale White backfield. No, they were incredible. Like oh. seeing all those players, and there was a punt return that Reggie Bush had for a touchdown, where he ran into a skirmish of players and just out. And I hadn't been to that many football games at the time, so I didn't. You know, I wasn't. It was a less experienced like viewer of football live, and he ran into just like a pile of bodies. And then out the other side came Reggie Bush, and the pile of bodies was still there. But Reggie Bush was running for a touchdown on the other side. It was like that is it was one of the most exciting football plays I've ever seen live. Seeing Reggie Bush in college was unlike anything else. Like I remember going into that draft, which I guess would have been in 2006. The idea that they wouldn't draft, which and we we had no idea about the value of running backs at the time. But Mario Williams was drafted number one overall, and the idea that you wouldn't draft Reggie Bush with the first overall pick was fucking insane. I was like, this is the most thrilling athlete that I've ever seen live in my entire life. Like, how do you not take Reggie Bush? If you would have told us in that moment that Reggie Bush would have had, like, an average NFL career, maybe even a below-average NFL career, like, there's no way I was believing that. Yep. All checks out. So it, it was so, it was fun no matter what is what I'm saying. Like, oh yeah, it, it it was, and this was more like on a like firsthand experience type situation because I was just having fun by going to these games, except for that Oregon State game where it rained more than it has ever rained <laughs> any day in Seattle history. I think we were just like our shirts were soaked through and i think we had you come pick us up in like the third quarter that sounds about right yeah anyway oh the texans were in like their fourth season yeah i was going to look at the draft uh you know it was not fun the mariners spent big in free agency paying 64 million over five years for adrian beltre who turned out to be a great player hall of famer but terrible for what was then safeco field and 50 million over four years for richie sexton then they lost 93 games again. LOL. But to each row had a it was a bright spot. <laughs> Felix Hernandez made his debut in August and posted a 2.67 ERA in 84 and a third innings. And I spent some time to try and track down which was the Felix game we went to during his rookie yes. season. Most likely either August 9th versus Minnesota, which is first home start, or August 15th versus Kansas City. I'm going to guess that it was August 15th versus Kansas City, but I... It seems more likely that we would not have gone to his first home start. I, I, I mean, Felix was important enough at the time. This was baseball, which, by the way, this was the peak of USS Mariner, right? Yes. Which we haven't talked about at all. But USS Mariner, as far as... Oh, so formative. Baseball fan sites was a huge deal that was... I mean, that's the only reason I know about Felix is because I've been reading about him on USS Mariner. He's King Felix for years. So D- I don't know if he was King Felix. Dave yet. Cameron and Derek, Derek Zumsteg. I was like, Jeff Zumsteg? Uh, Derek Zumsteg's USS Mariner, which 
It was there was one other writer, right? Back I'm sure there was, <laughs> uh, but which at the time was essential reading for Mirrors fans. Oh yeah, Dave Cameron, SeaTac's Tax Five. Really? Jason Barker was. Did the you go third, to uh, Tiny High School? Of Home of? No, he went to a he went to like Seattle Christian, I think, or some some tiny Christian All right. school. Well, it. I was gonna say that he was dead to me, but if he would have gone to Highline or <clears throat> Mount Rainier, then he would have been, but. I'll accept it. Yeah, he, he was not a rival. I'll accept it. Sense. Let's wrap up Seattle sports with the Storm coming out of the championship in 2004. Was lost starters Sheree Sam and Camilla Ditchkova from that team in free agency, along with key reserve Tully Bevelacqua. Sheree Sam had the braids. Wow, yes. man, she was awesome in that championship team. Well, really. she, she, she was, she was thrilling. We liked her a lot. Yeah. Uh, so they had three rookies in the rotation that year really went heavy with international players, uh, Australian Susie Bakovic, Italian Francesca Zara, Russian Natalia Vodopianova, uh, but still went 20 and 14 that season and were the number two seed once again in the West. They won game one against the Houston Comets shortly after Hurricane Katrina. There was a bunch of refugees from New Orleans that had been bused to Houston and that attended the game. It was a really odd situation. But then, so they came home with two chances needing to win one, a situation that only one team in WNBA history had ever lost the series before then, uh, but suffered a narrow 67-64 loss in Game 2, followed by a lopsided 75-58 loss in Game 3 of that series, with Cheryl Swoops recording, I think, the first playoff triple-double in WNBA history. Wow. So... That was a that was a really crushing blow because it seemed like that series was over in the Storm's favor, and then all of a sudden the season was over in two games. Who do you think from the 2006 NFL draft of Reggie Push or Mario Williams had the most Pro Football Reference career added value? <sighs> Approximate value, sorry. I think it's Mario Williams. But I'm not it is still Mario Williams. Sure. It's, it's okay. not by much. Really, I have to say the beginning of this draft, the Reggie Bush in the end got to quite a high approximately. And he was number two until you get to pick 11 Jay Cutler. <clears throat> so, I mean, he has some good years there, Reggie Bush. I mean, Matt Leiner, I think the, up there with the worst in the first round, only Ty Hill was lower. Oh, no, no. John McCargo. For the who I think might have died for the Bills, the Seahawks that year drafted Kelly Jennings. <clears throat> John, John McCargo is still happily living. What happened? Did he retire really early? What happened, to John McCargo? Was he just a bust? I mean, he played. He, he just was a, not a good player. None of us are happily living. Um, <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying. Uh, there are two. He's, I mean, he's, he's happy as compared to you thinking he's dead. There were three pro bowlers in that first round, right? Bold means you're a pro bowler. Man, this was a brutal draft. People thought that NBA draft was bad. Mercedes Lewis. Devin Hester at 57. Mercedes Lewis, Jonathan Joseph, and Vernon Davis were the pro bowlers. Yes, like, seriously, if you would have told me after watching that... Uh, <laughs> USC versus Texas game that neither Vince Young nor Reggie Bush would ever make a Pro Bowl. Like, the, it is True. unheard of. And that Andrew Whitworth would still be in the damn NFL. Wait, Vince Young. Uh, no, I think you're looking at the wrong thing. According to Wikipedia, Vince Young was a Pro Bowl. Really? 
as was Mario Williams, Jabrikashaw Ferguson, Vernon Davis, what Dante Whitner, Jay Cutler. I don't know. All right, well, I take that. Maybe that's traded picks or something. Hmm. But Reggie Bush was not, nor was A.J. Hawk. He was a number five pick. All right, should we talk about music? Uh, let's try. We can try to get through music faster in 2005. Uh, I thought a good place to start was the two albums that were released on August 30th, Plans by Death Cab for Cutie and Late Registration by Kanye. Oh, well, I'll let you start with Plans because I did not hear it until 2015. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I heard the uh, the album in its entirety that much earlier than that, but... Uh, like, I, I don't conceive of it as an album, but several notable songs on there. Soul Meets Body, I Will Follow You Into the Dark, Someday You Will Be Loved. So much moderate indie rock. It was the first Death Cab record that was released on a major label, and the it was like, this this was the, you know, the OC had happened, right? Like, <laughs> uh, I think in 2005, I remember meeting a girl at UW and watching uh, Garden State with her. <laughs> <laughs> like that was what 2005 was we watched garden state together <laughs> we listened to the shins like the, the indie rock had gone mainstream by 2005 yes it had yes it had and then late registration by kanye which to this day of my pre-trump kanye records which this is my least favorite I've like I, I anticipated late registration. I had talked last week about how much I loved college dropout and cared so much about college dropout and had the most anticipation for late registration. Uh, he had uh, Diamonds from Sierra Leone as the first single, which we were our minds were blown by, right? And then there was Gold Digger, which was pretty yeah. huge, right? With Jamie Foxx as Otis Redding on Gold Digger, and it was like singles were incredible he worked with john bryan for this for this record and we just thought it was going to be like massive and it's just like for whatever reason these songs except for gone featuring cameron uh never connected with me it was like i like it it's still a kanye record but there's so many songs on here i'm just like whatever like uh, just, i mean my description to you on gchat the other day was there's so much filler on this album he he got Kanye tightened it up by the next record by graduation, right? Like yeah. graduation was wow, still his most played song, stronger. I'm kind of shocked by that. Six hundred and sixty-six million plays really makes you think, doesn't it? Uh, but like, I don't. Late registration. I feel like Kanye was trying to do, uh, and he had the hits or whatever, but like a little bit too much. There were there were a little bit too many skits. There were there, a little bit. Oh, well, there was maybe a lot. It's, and also, they're numbered too. Where you're just like, dude, like it was this. This is this is the Kanye record, and I know a lot of people really love late registration, but it was just never for me in the same sort of way. To me, I I felt like there was a comparison between the Franz Ferdinand follow-up wow. record uh, that year, and uh, that was. Uh, checking notes here you could have it so much better and late registration where both of them have like a strong song or two but in general not a comparison to their debuts the previous year i i would agree with that critically late registration took connie up a notch like 
I don't think that's age problem. No, I, I don't think so either. Some debuts in 2005. Rihanna with Music of the Sun, an album that I listened to and don't know any of the songs except Ponda Replay, and none of them are very good. And like she either she hadn't figured it out or they hadn't figured out how to use Rihanna yes. or to like just let her turn her yes. loose. They were trying to make her into like some island sound, and that didn't work yeah. right. Uh, Wolf Parade comes on the scene. <laughs> our, our friends Wolf Parade with apologies to the Queen Mary. Not quite my favorite Wolf Parade oh, album. That's of course Expo '86, but still some bangers on this one. And then LCD Sound System with their self-titled debut. It is kind of amazing that you mentioned that third. Uh, the <laughs> Shine well, a Light by Wolf yeah. Parade. We had the, I had a burn CD and it froze. I think I stole from the Western like music exchange thing. It froze for like a half second in the middle of that, and so it's just like that propulsive like do 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 do, and then it pauses and then it comes back and I was like, wow, they should have done that in the real song. <laughs> uh, Wolf Parade was like the most exciting thing in indie rock in 2005. LCD sound system. So there was. Did I talk about this before? 120 minutes. Mm, I'm not sure. Uh, or wait, no, no, no. Sorry, not 120 minutes. Oh god, the the MTV show after 120 minutes. Uh, I I don't know what you're talking about, so I can't help well, you there. Subterranean. Uh, <clears throat> there was Daft Punk is playing at my house, which is like insane for us in 2005 like it, it was it was a generation of kids who were getting into indie rock that had not listened to electronic music at all maybe this is just me but like i feel like a lot of people were just like oh when we heard that first lcd sound system and i i feel like lcd sound system more than probably any music even stuff that i cared more about or was more popular in 2005 and they got better after 2005 you know, like, the best LCD sound system albums did not happen in 2005, but, like, this was predicting the next 10 years of music right here. And it was, like, James Murphy. It, it didn't even feel at the time like it was that vital. It was like, oh, that's that, like, cool kind of weird song. And then by the time you get to Sound of Silver or whatever, you're like, oh, this person's a visionary. But, like, it, it, it all started right here. And I remember listening to that i got it on cd from the library and listening to it being like what the fuck is this <laughs> <You know? laughs> um uh the best song on that that album is losing my edge though where he's talking about like all these like classic underground like records or whatever and he's talking and he's losing his edge and he's like i've heard that you've had you have and then whatever all these like classic sort of obscure sort of legendary like underground music and it's just like this is the perfect fucking music for 2005 right where everybody is like the hipster mentality was that first lcd sound system album yes and that's when you know like that's when hipsterdom really came came to be a thing when, when was hipster runoff when i think it was a little bit later this this is before this is before uh chill wave happens we're in the pre-Chill Wave yes. era, uh, which yeah. is so also 2005. I'm painting our house on Queen Anne before I ate Aloha Street, uh, right before I'm about to start at UW. 
And I think it was like the week before Bumbershoot or something. And Jan is making me paint. So I'm like, okay, I will paint this house if you give me money to go to Easy Street and buy CDs after. And one of those CDs that I buy, the original version with Superman on the cover, and that is Come On, Feel the Illinois by Sufjan. Officially just Illinois, but yes, styled on the album Come On, Feel the Illinois. And what a good Like, it changed everything for Sufjan. It was like a KXP album that people were really excited about. But like, I remember getting it and like looking at the CD and listening through it. And it's one of those things where I feel like there, it was so long and so dense, very pop, but very dense, where like it took you time and like you'd be a year into listening to it or something. And maybe there were smarter people than me who heard it right away or whatever. But you're like, oh, fuck, Casimir Pulaski Day. <laughs> you're like holy shit like where did that come from and and i think it's i mean i like that one from the start i think but it was one of those things where like you know the the at the beginning you're like stephen a douglas was a great debater right but abraham lincoln was the great emancipator that was like the line in 2005 and then the other stuff like predatory wasps and casimir pulaski day sort of moved to the forefront as like these are real songs right this isn't like a dope stephen a douglas reference I, let's not be demeaning to stephen a douglas references. No, no, no 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 that's great also but it it, it feels like at some point those songs moved beyond the gimmick right and that was like like, yeah, the song's called Casimir Pulaski Day, which is a thing in Illinois and isn't other places, but, like, it's a great song no matter what it's called, and it has nothing to do with Casimir Pulaski Day. And so, like, the the reference was, I think it was really important at the time when we didn't, I, I don't think the masses really recognized how important of an artist Sufjan was in 2005, and as time kept passing, it was like, oh, this is, like, one of the most important voices in alternative music. Uh, some other ones that I wanted to mention, which we can get through music relatively quickly for this year, because <clears throat> I've got one more thing. But super quick, uh, I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning by Bright Eyes, released on the same day as Digital Ash and Digital Earn by Bright Eyes. To me, I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning, not an album that I cared about until 2015, 16. Um, I was watching, oh God, what is dude's name? What's that show, Crashing? You know what I'm talking about? It's a show. Yeah. Oh, God. Is it Crashing? Pete Holmes. Uh, Pete Holmes' show, Crashing. So it would have been at least 2017. So this is recent, where, like, uh, Ode to Joy comes on at the end of one of those episodes, and I'm just like, what is this? You know, it's like, this song sounds familiar, but I don't know if I've ever heard it before. And from that point forward, now, in the year 2020, I have listened to I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning, probably more than any album in full this year. Wow. It's like, the the music is just, I mean, he's talking about the fucking Iraq War, where you're like, okay, yes. And, and there's some stuff like themes about Christianity, which just aren't as present anymore in our modern society. And I'm not like, but Connor Oberst as a songwriter, as one of, 
again, similar to Sufjan, like the most important voices in alternative music, Conor Oberst has never been better. And it's music that just keeps feeling important. Right? Like, I, I would tell you, go listen to I'm Wide Awake It's Morning tomorrow, and it's going to fucking hit. Like, it is, it is the perfect album. Uh, Give Me Fiction by Spoon. First time that I ever cared about Spoon. Uh, but I turned my camera on. I was driving in Boulevard Park, and I heard I turned my camera on. And I was like, all right, well, this is what I'm going to be listening to every single day for the next five years. Uh, the Sunset Tree by Mountain Goats, which like turned to more accessible music for Mountain Goats. But listening to dance music for the first time ever, I was like, oh, man, John Darniel. Me and me and my girlfriend at the time used to fight about the mountain goats because she was like, I don't like hearing this dude's voice. He sounds like a mountain goat, and I'm like, you're like you're not getting it. Um, I don't know if I like his voice, but I still like the music. You know, it doesn't fucking matter. What John Darniel is speaking to your soul it doesn't matter what his voice sounds like. And then also, clap your hands, say yeah. Self-titled record. I, I had never really listened to, didn't really care about, but this was the moment in 2007 where Pitchfork was the, this wasn't hipster runoff, this was Pitchfork's moment. And that was like a mostly unknown record that they gave best new music out of nowhere and the band blew up or whatever. Like Clap Your Hands Say Yeah was the only band that people cared about for like two weeks in indie rock because of this Pitchfork review, which years later led to a sketch from, I think this was a pre-Human Giant sketch, but Aziz Ansari's Human Giant. Do you remember members of Human Giant? Yeah. Who are they? Well, who else? Well, uh, uh, Rob Hubel. Oh, yeah. Hubel. Huge Hubel moment. And then... Paul Shear. Paul Shear, like, yeah, who was on the Low Post last week. Really? Talking about Human Giant extensively. Wait, Really? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Zach Lowe's, because to out. me, Human Giant has been lost to time. That was the first time I've thought about it. I, well, no, I thought about it actually previously, because I was like, what year was that? We're going to need to remember Human Giant. And then then Zach bringing it up was the second time I had thought about wow, it. Wow, Zach Lowe weird. really brought it up. That's kind of wild. So <clears throat> yeah. there was a sketch on – it was like their internet show pre-Human Giant that they had where Clell Tickle – indie rock publicist or whatever and it's about the story of oh he's trying to get it on yeah he's i'm sorry as clell tickle trying to get clap your hands say yeah this review on pitchfork and rob hubel is like the enforcer or whatever that that is like my old that is the lasting impression of clap your hands say yeah (laughs) so that that was okay so, Bumbershoot, 2005. Are we ready to... Wait, I thought, we got to mention the White Stripes album. Do we? Yeah, there's at least two quality songs off of that. Okay. I mean, I would say that... Uh, oh, both, uh, let's see, Blue Orchid and My Doorbell are strong songs off that. Also, 50 Cent's follow-up. Yeah, the, we have to mention it, it was a big deal, and for the next Kanye album, had, the, was the, it was the the com- competition between Kanye and Fifty Cent about who would sell more. Hate it or love it, just a little bit, like this. This still hate it or love it is not on the Fifty Cent album. That is on the the yeah, game album, the documentary. 
Well, it's, it's also on the massacre. I hate to break it to you. Am I wrong about this? They just threw it on everything at the time? I think it's on, I guess so. Uh, yeah. Let me just look, pull up Wikipedia here. Single by the game featuring 50 Cent from the album The Documentary. By the game. So they just put it on there because it was 2005 and who cares? Uh, but no, this this was the year that the game first came into existence. Former Wazoo basketball player Jason Taylor. Okay, Bumbershoot 2005. Well, wait, but there was one more thing that I want to mention. Okay, okay, so also 2005. I feel like this happened in 2006, but we need to bring it up. I think 2005 was the first year that I remember there being a song in the summer. Oh, really? And that was Feel Good Inc. by by Gorillaz. Uh, yeah. It's like if you went to Wild Waves with Jan, Feel Good Inc. was playing, you'd be there for an hour, and it played six times. (laughs) There was nothing else. It was like it reached the the perfect point of being kind of non-threatening, but a little bit dancey and a little bit hip hop, and also it was by white people, like the, or enough white people that Wild Waves could get behind it and like the mainstream could get behind it for 2005. Like that was that was ubiquitous that summer. I I have a very specific memory. It's different from your like being injured memory, but like uh, I think caffeine may have made my heart race a little <laughs> bit around this point. <laughs> And that combo combined with a panic attack made me think that I was having a heart uh-huh. attack and staying up one entire night and just watching MTV or VH1 or something. VH1 wasn't playing music videos at this point. Uh, something that was playing music videos all night long, and that definitely came on like three or four times. During I did period. the same thing when I was listening to Park Life in 98. I was snorting Smarties. <laughs> And then I stopped drinking pop, and now I'm wow. fine. So there you go. You're missing out. Okay. Uh, okay. Bumper Bumper shoot 2005. Shoot I'm waiting in line to see Elvis Costello. It's pouring rain, right? We're talking Oregon State levels of rain to see Elvis Costello. And meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, across the country, the most important music in 2005 happens. Do you want to know what that moment is? What's that? George Bush doesn't care about black people. Oh, that yeah. is 2005. Kanye West on the Katrina telethon, right next to a stunned Mike Myers, delivers delivers yes. that message, and that was the moment that Kanye became Kanye, right? Like this was when Kanye became brash and outspoken, would say whatever. And again, we're talking like saying about Reggie Bush, the idea that Kanye <laughs> in 2020 would be one of Trump's biggest celebrity supporters is just, it was unheard of in 2005. It was like Kanye was all of us in 2005. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of reckon with as somebody who is like, hell yeah, Kanye, like you're speaking truth to power. And then now how everything has changed. So that really like, otherwise, when I look back at the lineup of Bumbershoot 2005, I mean, I remember going to a lot of these things. It was the first time uh, that I'd ever seen, like, The Far Side with Taleb Kuali opening. And I remember, like, I knew nothing about The Far Side. But after that, I was like, okay, she keeps on passing me by, sure. Uh, Seeing the Decemberists, who also, I think, 
had a huge 2005. Maybe 2004? Uh, 2005 was 16 Military Wives, and I think that was their biggest breakthrough, as I recall it, at least. I think you're wrong about that. Hold on. It appears this uh, little tickle indie marketing oh, video, come out 2005. Video, video is no longer Are on the internet. Are you kidding me? It's very disappointing. Yeah, so Pigrest comes out in 2005, 16 Military Wives, which is like, People were roasting Bush in 2005. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, there was that. There was the Mariner's Revenge song, which to this day, huge part of their set. Uh, but seeing the Decembers was huge also at the time, which I always felt weird about because I was like, not weird about, but I always felt like I was on really early. Went to a comedy show that I'm pretty sure Eugene Merman was part of, which was years before he became a popular comedian. And then Aziz Ansari. Saw Aziz Ansari for the first time ever in 2005, and he was indie, right? Like, he would tell jokes about Kanye songs, and that was at, at Bumbershoot, which, granted, he's playing fucking Bumbershoot. Like, I can accept that he was not a small comedian at the time, but, like, the it felt like, to us who were there, like, we were on something really early. We were like, this dude is going to be huge. And then by the time he became huge, we resented the whole thing, um, of course. But him telling a joke... Did we? We did. You didn't. We did. Um, (laughs) Aziz Ansari, there's a line on College Dropout where Connie's like trying to get five beats a day for three summers. And Aziz Ansari is like, yeah, that's not hard. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. (laughs) Bam, bam, bam. Okay. (laughs) Him telling that joke and I was like, Aziz Ansari speaks to me. (laughs) It's like, he's one of us. It feels like at at some point, like he, he was the coolest comedian on the planet. In 2005. Yeah. I I really like the rest of the, the, there's like Trey Anastasio. I didn't go to that. I remember going to see Common, but I don't really have memories of it. Definitely did not go see Garbage. I gotta say, revisiting the music of 2005, B from Common, like, forgotten, but was was outstanding. I mean, we talked about it last week with the track being recorded on Chappelle's show is on B. Uh, but I, I do want to say 2005 was the first year that I was ever aware of Sasquatch Music Festival. And I'm pretty sure Kanye played in 2005. I'm going to see it. I'm going to see if this is correct. Because <laughs> I know that Kanye played at some point. 2005, maybe we should start looking at this because it's a hell of a lot better than Bummer She was in 2005. Sasquatch 2005, Arcade Fire, Block Party, Blue Scholars, Modest Mouse, Joanna Newsom, Pixies, Kanye West, Wilco. Like, it's it's pretty undefeated. And I remember hearing about it in like radio ads on KXP, and they're like Sasquatch Music Festival at the Gorge. And I'm like, just the the idea of getting to the Gorge for a one day music festival, (laughs) a one day indie rock music festival, it just seemed hard. I was like, I'm going to tell Jan that I'm driving to the Gorge and that I drive back or whatever. Like it seemed just so complicated. We should look at both of these as we go forward quickly. But like that lineup, I mean, it was the Pixies the year after they played Bumbershoot, but like, I'm sorry, what what about this has been quick? When we talk about it, just quick, we haven't talked about Bumbershoot for a long time. And I remember them having Kanye, which, can you imagine as Kanye? <laughs> I guess Blue Scholars were on there, but, like, there's two hip-hop artists. This was why, as indie people, Kanye seemed like one of ours. Because he was playing 
Sasquatch in 2005. <sighs> 2005. A big year in television. Really? Premieres that year. The Office, the American version, which premiered with six episodes in the spring, then then had a traditional full second season. And definitely became went on to become one of the most influential sitcoms in modern television. Yes. I went and revisited the Dundies earlier today because I feel like that's the first episode that really stands out in my well, mind. Well, to me, it's some of those sexual one episodes are I think good. it's the second episode of season two. Yeah, that was the next episode. Yeah. Uh, Dundies was the premiere of season was two. Was it? No. Really? I, re- I literally rewatched it hours ago. I, I'm aware of what, what order it was in. Uh, I, it's interesting. Season one, I think, probably better in hindsight. Like, Diversity Days in there. Some other good ones. But, you know, one of the big things that happened is I think they changed the tone a little bit based on Steve Carell's success in The 40-Year-Old Virgin that yeah. summer. I mean, so Steve Carell became and, a star that offseason. Oh, yeah. Like, he was was so much bigger than just the guy who was doing even Stephen with Stephen Colbert, who the Colbert uh-huh. report, rapport also did. Really? In 2005? In 2005 yeah. Wow. Big year for Stevens, who used to be correspondents on The Daily Show. The, the thing is, though, I mean, they softened Michael, but Michael Scott, but rewatching The Office now, it seems really mean-spirited. To Does it? Me. God, you're always so anti The Office. I'm not anti The Office. I'm anti the last season of The Office. It's just, I don't no, know if it's a change not totally the, the on The last TV season because... got a little bit better, but there's like there's one right before that that's just awful. The Pam Jim stuff? Oh. Not part of my Office canon. I mean, really, there. when Michael Scott leaves, The Office is over. We all know that. It's the James Spader period. We not we want no business with, and also Will Ferrell. Somehow they managed to make Will Ferrell seem bad, but I think season eight might be the worst office season. I, that's not a rankings I want to do. So also debuting that year in the fall, How I Met Your Mother, a show that I didn't get into for a few years, but then became one of my all-time Yeah, I didn't watch it. Television I, programs. <clears throat> man, 2006. Well, I'm going to save it for 2006. I want to talk about The Office next season. Of Let's remember some years. <laughs> season, huh? All right. So uh, the other show that debuted in the summer of 2005, one that I did not get into for like six years, but still had plenty of seasons to come. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's, it's still on the air, right? Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah, they just finished a season. Good God, that is wild. Uh, you know what else is still on the air that debuted in 2005? Grey's Anatomy. Really? It's still on the air? Grey's Anatomy started, we sent them, the Sonics marketing department sent them some Sonics gear to like have in the background of someone's Wow, they, they outlasted the Sonics on by the a air. long time. By so much. <laughs> uh, oh, I remember the Colbert Report debuting now, right? Because we all like Stephen Colbert. Uh, from our, our limited understanding of who he was, from the even Stevens and as a field reporter for the or for the Daily Show, which really I mean we haven't talked about the Daily Show enough. Like Daily Show was central to a lot of the things that happened in comedy in the early two thousands. Yes, because it's you know it's not just these two. There's generations of of reporters beyond that, and like I mentioned, like America the Book was a big deal. In the two, in it was a number one bestseller in 2004 or whatever. But like, 
I remember watching the Colbert Report and really being like, what is this? You know? <laughs> like, yeah, because it was very different than what he had been doing previously, I think. Well, I don't know I what he had been doing, but like the Stephen Colbert character as like uh, like right-wing news media host, it was fucking brilliant in 2005. It was, a, it was a time that was ripe for that sort of thing, as most of them are. So, that I mean, it was like the, the first, I mean, I think the entire run of the Colbert Report, like it was, the whole thing was pretty brilliant what they were doing uh, and had put together and how it felt, it was like, the whole thing was like a big in-joke, basically. Also in movies that year, Wedding Crashers. Man, God, do we love Wedding Crashers and the 40-year-old version. We sure did. Yes. I feel like Wedding Crashers probably higher rewatchability than the 40-year-old version. I cannot, well, I don't know about that, but I cannot talk about accoutrement. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. <It's so> <laughs> By the time I did all that, it was... I had to but get rid but of I can't talk about Meatloaf <laughs> without thinking of that. Meatloaf. Oh, my God. When Will, when ah! Will Ferrell comes in in Wedding Crashers... And then he's at the funeral at the very end. Like, God, oh, this was peak Will Ferrell. Great moment. Uh, also that year, the, the Star Wars prequel trilogy wrapped up with Revenge of the okay, Sith. Okay, so I still stand for Revenge of the Sith. I actually think it's the best Star Wars movie ever. Uh, <clears throat> oh, boy. Uh, no, I don't know about that. It, it is definitely the best of the non original trilogy Star Wars movies to me. It's better than any of the sequels. And it's obviously better than any of the other prequels. But, like, the last, like, hour of Revenge of the Sith is excellent. And it's, like, just boom, 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 one after another. Like, I mean, say what you will about the process for Anakin changing to Darth Vader or whatever. Like, it might happen. It happens over, like, two conversations. And he's just like, boom, I'm Darth <laughs> Vader. But the the way that it, the whole, like, plot by palpatine was played and it comes together at the end of revenge of the sith it's just like damn that's good and then you see him get the helmet on at the very end and like luke and leia being born to these futuristic droids which didn't exist all of a sudden like 30 years later uh there's a lot of questions but like the battle between anakin and obi-wan to end revenge of the sith it is this is a good movie like people don't want to yeah. admit it but right halfway through this movie like they get rid of all of the most annoying parts of all the prequels, and you're just like, "Let's roll!" Right? Like it's it, it took so long for them to get to the point of like it's on, and then they do, and they have a half of they have one half of one good movie for all the sequels. But like it is so good, it is still totally rewatchable. Uh, to me, a film that also I mean, there's there's others that are big or whatever that. I, weren't huge to me. I was still a little bit indie film in 2005. I remember going going to see, which this felt so indie in, 2000, in 2005, Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale in the theater, and we had to go to, like, a theater around UW, right? It's like, had to, tra had to travel to... to <laughs> Who was we? Not you and me. You didn't know who the fuck Noah Baumbach was in 2005. Uh, I'm, I'm planning to watch Squid and the Whale at some point uh, here, because I watched Marriage Story a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, but also I remember going in IMAX to 
<laughs> I had never Squid and the Whale, dude. Bridges, yeah, Bridges in three D. <laughs> His beard just in three D. Haunting, haunting stuff. Uh, going to IMAX to see Batman Begins though. We're like again, Batman Begins is still my favorite of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies because I had no expectations for it. Like I had zero interest in going to go see a Batman movie. It was like I wasn't reading reviews of movies in 2005, right? Like, I guess I, I don't know if I am now either. But, like, Jan was like, come watch Batman Begins in IMAX with me. And I'm like, I'm fine, whatever. And then sitting there and just, like, enthralled the entire movie where I was like, what the fuck? And I was like, this is a Batman movie? Because I knew nothing about the, like, Batman as a character before then because of how bad the movies of our, like, early childhood were right like we were a little bit too young to catch the maybe good parts of the original batman films that came out in the late 80s early 90s you know it's like i have a vague memory of the of danny devito as the penguin but mostly it was like batman forever and batman and robin which were legitimately bad movies so the nolan reboot we had no idea who christopher nolan was didn't care and seeing that and just like how this is very much like middle-aged white dude thing, but being like, this is so serious and dense. It was like the, the villains weren't over the top. Scarecrow is the main villain. And I suppose Rachel al Ghul, but he doesn't really show up too much until the very end. But like, those are not, this is not the Joker, right? This isn't fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. This isn't Jim Carrey. It was like, this is a serious movie that's happening and watching that like i was just like watching that in imax it was one of those moments where i was like i went into this movie expecting nothing at all and left caring about batman for the rest of my life anything else in 2005 <sighs> well you can suck at jan <clears throat> um because wow. <laughs> Because uh, uh, I got into UW that year and oh, we moved yeah. out of the house. Me and Katie driving around like Wedgwood, Northgate area, looking for places to live. Uh, and then finally ended up in a house that was like massive house for $1,200 a month rent. And I even paid less because Katie had the bigger room. So I didn't pay an equal share. I think I paid $385 in rent. <laughs> Uh, and, and very little in heat. Just, just nothing. Uh, discovering like food on the Ave a little bit, not as much as I wish I would have. And like we went to that shitty Chinese place that was on like 105th all the time. And that amazing Chinese place. <laughs> it, it was just like th this was the year that for me and probably for you also, because uh, you're about three years behind on everything. Uh, Okay. <laughs> Start, started like transitioning to becoming a, a more of an independent adult it was 2005 i moved out of i moved out of our childhood home for the first time ever so you were yep. still living there were you the, I, I was at that point, yes. <laughs> it's all right i, I moved but back I previously yeah i had previously not lived there 